0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Isaac, and today we are starting the next part in our series on humility. And we are gonna be looking at the life of a really unique man that lived with Jesus. And so, uninvited, unconsidered, and criticized. Nobody likes it, but we all have to deal with these things in our lives. Well, what if we lived, get this, with the uncanny ability to be unoffendable? There's this man in scripture who did, and his name was John the Baptist. So today, Pastor Dave is going to teach on John the Baptist's unique and special ability to be unoffendable. This is something that's going to be challenging for us to hear, but every single one of us can grow in our ability to not take offense to the various things that happen around us in our lives. Hey, I want to remind you of some really special resources that we have. If you go to BeartownRoad.org, you'll be able to find those. On the front page of our website, you'll find Find a link to our family devotionals which is just some really cool things you can do to engage with your children you'll be able to sign up for small groups if you've missed it uh you'll be able to check out our events to see what's going on throughout this fall hey our fall season is basically scheduled out through christmas which is kind of hard to believe we're coming into christmas of 2021 but we are and so i would encourage you to go to beartownroad.org to see all of that so without further ado let's jump into this message taken from october 3rd titled Unoffendable.
1: All right, so we are on part three or episode three of this series called Humility. And um, the word humility comes from this word humus, which means from the earth um, or low. uh, Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. And so humility is is literally um, a lowness, thinking of myself, um, a lowness of thinking so that I can bless other people. We say that it's, it's about leveraging what God has given us for the good of other people. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of myself less. So um, as we've been talking about this whole theme of humble heroes, uh, and Anne just mentioned a humble hero, I came across a small group this past week that demonstrated what it looks like to practice humility Every year we give each small group $500 to serve in the local community. And this group right here, this is actually two groups that came together to uh, make mugs and put words of encouragement and some Amazon cards and just some treats. They made about 70 of them to give to the staff and teachers at Jasper Troopsburg High School because... Due to the floods, they had to leave their building and find a new building. So I just thought that was a great idea for them as small groups to come together and say, let's leverage what God has given us to be a blessing to other people. So today we are talking about John the Baptist, who really has an extraordinary story of humility. We learn of John the Baptist's story at the very beginning of the book of Luke as his father, Zechariah, a priest, walks into the temple, he's offering incense or worshiping God, and an angel just shows up, right, and, and says to him, you're going to have a son in your old age, even though your wife and you are really old and beyond childbearing years, I'm miraculously going to give you a son. And he's like, I, I don't know, that's, that, that's crazy. But the angel says, this, this son that you're going to have is going to be great in the sight of the Lord. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. So John the Baptist, 30 years after this um, prophecy is out in the wilderness, and he's kind of far away from the, 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 the cities of the town, of the place. And I just imagine dozens and dozens of hundreds, maybe, people just lining up to get baptized, not only to get baptized, but to uh, repent of their sins and to say, Look, I, I've been a fa- I haven't been the best father. I haven't been there for my children or my wife as I should have been. And John the Baptist says, okay, since you've repented of your sins, now let me baptize you. And his ministry really only lasted for maybe a year or two, but it was anointed by God, and it exploded in a very short period of time, which makes me think of the ministry of Promise Keepers. Some of you might remember Promise Keepers, which started in 1990 by a guy named Bill McCartney, who was uh, an ex-football coach at the University of Colorado. And his whole passion was to Equip men to be great fathers, great leaders, and great husbands and I remember going to Three River Stadium in pittsburgh in the in the early 90s and fifty thousand guys would be packed into these football stadiums, just worshipping the lord and some people would be repenting, and it was like I'm going to be the best dad, is like you know the better father and a, a better husband. And I remember going to Washington D.C. for Stand in the Gap, and there were a million men that would gather on the Mall in Washington D.C. And I remember in the the subway uh, cars, people would just be singing out praises to the Lord. It was cr- really an incredible season of blessing that Promise Keepers had, and it lasted for about ten years. They still exist, but they don't have near the influence that they did during that season where men were just coming back to the Lord and being committed to being great fathers and being there for their children. And I imagine that's the way it was for John the Baptist, that he has this little slice of history, this little season where people are showing up and confessing their sins and rededicating themselves to God and saying, I'm going to be a better father, a better mother. And John the Baptist would say, okay, I'm I'm going I'm going to baptize. You know, this is different than Christian baptism, of course. If you're a Christian and you've been baptized. We do that as a demonstration that we're Jesus followers. It's a one baptism that doesn't need to be done again. But people would come to John the Baptist, and it was just—it symbolic. It was ceremonial. It was, I want to be washed away of the past. I want to repent. I want to start anew. And I think it's interesting that he did it in the Jordan River. Because as the nation of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and then crossed the Jordan River to begin their new life in this promised land, here's John the Baptist baptizing people in the Jordan River to symbolize new life. So anyway, ministry's booming, lots of people coming, he's popular, he's a little bit strange because he wears like camel hair clothes and a leather belt and he, he eats organic locusts and wild honey. And he's a little bit weird, and he's very kind of fiery brimstone, like the religious leaders would come, and and he would call them snakes, and he would say, you guys think you're good just because you're children of Abraham, but God could take stones and raise up children of Abraham out of these stones. It was just kind of real intense, but people would kind of cheer him on. He just had this really big ministry. So one day, the religious leaders gather some of their leaders, some of the priests and Levites, and they say, hey, this guy's got a booming ministry. And because they were kind of the guardians of truth. We want you to go ask John the Baptist, what is he all about? Who is he and why is he doing this? So a group of Levites and priests, they, they make their way out into the Judean wilderness. probably takes them a couple days to get there. It's hot. You know, they're sweating. They finally make it up to John the Baptist. And they say to him, who are you? Can you give us an answer to take back to those who sent us? what do you say about yourself? And he's like, I'm I'm not the prophet. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not who you think I am. I am simply." And he quotes a passage from the book of Isaiah. I am the voice of one calling in the desert, make straight the way for the Lord. So he quotes a passage that was written by a prophet 700 years prior. And, um, you think about back in biblical times, these dignitaries or these emperors, these generals or sort of important people would come into the city and you would roll out the red carpet. If there were potholes, you would fill them in. If there were little valleys, you would lower the valleys. If there were uh, or you would high, you'd make the valleys higher. If there were little mountains, you'd cut them off so that he had a nice, smooth ride into the city on his chariot, because this is the guy. He's visiting us. We want to make sure that we roll out the red, the red carpet. And John's like, this is my purpose. This is what I'm doing. I am rolling out the red carpet. I am pointing to a man among you who stands one you do not know, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. This is an extraordinary statement. This man that I'm pointing you towards, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals and wash his feet, which was the job that was relegated to the lowest slave in society. And religious leaders are like, okay, I don't don't really understand that. I don't really understand you, whatever. And they head back to Jerusalem and John continues doing ministry. The Apostle John records all of this. You can read, you know, John's story in, in Matthew as well. This is this is what John tells us. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now I don't think John knew exactly what he meant by the Lamb of God. Two thousand years later we understand what the Lamb of God means. In Israel, they would take a lamb and they would slaughter it and the blood that was spilled would atone for their sins. Or the Passover lamb where they would take the blood and they'd paint it above the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over. And John in this moment is saying, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I believe he is prophetically speaking something that he doesn't understand, but we are so thankful for nowadays. And his disciples are like, not sure what that means, but you seem to be impressed by this Lamb of God. Well, he says it again. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. We discover one of them is Andrew. The other one is probably John, the author of this gospel. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And John tells us that when two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Again, Andrew and probably John. And they're like, you know, these young fishermen, just giddy guys, crazy excited that this might be the Messiah. So they're like following Jesus, right? They're like in the dust of the rabbi, just kind of smiling and they're excited and maybe trying to not make any noise, just kind of staying close to him. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns around and he saw them following and he asked, So what do you want? In other words, what, why are you guys following me? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? In other words, we, we want to come over to your house. Maybe we can have a cup of coffee. Maybe we can ask you some questions. Maybe we look at some Old Testament scripture. You know, I, my, my guy, John, the Baptist, who's been mentoring me for years, is really impressed by you. So we want to spend some time with you. And so Jesus says, come. And you will see. So they went and they saw where he was staying. And they spent that day with him. And we discover in Matthew's gospel that Andrew and Peter and John and James, they drop their nets and they leave their father's business. They say, I'm, see you later, Dad. I know you wanted me to be, take over the fishing business, but, but we're following Jesus. Now, If you don't know how the story ends, you might ask yourself, "Okay, well, does John the Baptist just retire after this? Is he just, you know, is he is he done? Is he like, hey, my my work here is done? I've lost a couple of my key disciples. Jesus is calling people. My job is to just point people to Jesus. Maybe he just retires. You know, kind of kicks back, collects his four hundred one k, buys himself a nicer tent. You know, buy, you know." Sells locusts on the side, I guess. Maybe people like wild honey, that that sort of thing. My job here is done. Maybe he'll become a follower of Jesus. Maybe he'll become one of Jesus' disciples. Well, he actually doesn't retire at all. He continues to do ministry. He gains more disciples. The text tells us that people were constantly following him. And his ministry got even bigger. He became even more popular. And we also discover that Jesus and his disciples are also baptizing people in the same area. So now we've got John the Baptist Church and the Nazarene Church, this kind of new startup church, you know, with Jesus as the leader and his disciples baptizing people. And they're just two growing ministries that are just going like gangbusters. Lots of people are following them. Lots of baptisms occurring. And it's just great. Until it wasn't great anymore because one day... The text tells us that a Jewish man, we don't know who, we don't know many details about this, but this Jewish man gets into an argument with some of John the Baptist's disciples. And it's over the issue of ceremonial cleansing. Again, we don't know all the details, but it's a theological issue or maybe a a methodological issue. If you've been around church long enough, you know that people can start to say, well, that church over there, they do things that way and we do things this way or they believe that and we believe, believe things the right way. So things started to get a little bit divisive. But the real issue here was John's disciples were a little bit upset that people were leaving their ministry to follow Jesus, that their ministry was getting a little bit smaller, that people were leaving the Baptist church to follow the Nazarene. Here's here's what they say. They they came to John, and they said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, you know, that man that you you were talking about, the, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing. Everyone is going to him. I mean, Jesus, it, it used to be so great when all these people would, would follow us, and there would be big, long lines, people would get baptized, and the religious leaders were kind of curious what was happening. It was just a buzz. But now we're looking around, and the lines are a little shorter, and Jesus' lines are getting a little bit longer. And I'm not real comfortable with this, John. And what John says next is so good. This is worth memorizing. This is so good. He looks at his guys in the midst of this sort of th- We're threatened by Jesus and his disciples. We don't really like what's happening. And John looks at him and he says, A man can only receive what is given to him from heaven. A man can only receive what God gives you. So whatever you have in your hand, however much you have, however much influence you have or resources you have, however many people follow you, whether it's one, two, three, or 3,000, that's what God's given you. So John's like, I'm okay with it because I'm trusting God that what he has given us, even though the lines are a little bit smaller and there's fewer followers, I know my purpose and my purpose is to point people to Jesus. And then he gives a great illustration. This is so good, he says this. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Now, if you've been around church, you've heard this term, the bride of Christ, which is a way to describe the church. The church is the bride of Christ, Christ is the bridegroom. Um, let me sort of describe in a cartoon sort of way how Jewish weddings worked in biblical times. So here we've got the groom and his groomsman with the best man in the middle. And here's his house, right? So When he gets engaged to the woman, he spends time working on the house, building the house. In some cases, they would add on to their parents' house. There's a verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, I'm going away to prepare a room for you, which is this language. The guy's preparing a room. He's fixing up the house so that when they get married, they can live in this house. So it's time for the wedding night. And everybody's excited because they're like, oh, this is going to be great. You know, the, my guy's finally going to marry this, this woman, and then we're going to have this big party. So the, the groom and the guys, they make this procession down the street. In those days, you know, people didn't travel very far. You typically met somebody who was nearby you. So they make this procession from his house all the way to her house. And the man goes inside. And they do their wedding vows. They have their wedding. And in the meantime, the guys are waiting on the outside. Eventually, the bridesmaids show up. Right? You might have like 10 virgins or you might have 10 bridesmaids. Jesus gave a parable about the 10 virgins. He's like, make sure you have enough oil in your lamp because we don't know how long they're going to take inside. They could be in there for like a half an hour. You, know, you do your, your vows real quick, like real fast, and then you just get out of there. Or they could be in there for hours. Who knows? I mean, they could be in there reading each other love notes or smooching or singing each other a song. Or Who knows how long they're going to be? But you as, as, the, as the guys and the ladies are like, all right, how long is this going to take? We, we want to go to the reception. Right? We want to party. We want to we enjoy one another's company. And they're just taking their good old time. And then all of a sudden, the man and the bride come out of the house and they shout out something like, we're married, it is finished, let's party. And the bride, or the, uh, the best man and all his guys and the ladies, they're like, yes, I am so joyful that I finally get to hear the voice of the bridegroom, and the bridegroom takes all of his wedding party, and the bride and the groom head back to his house where they enjoy a seven-day-long banquet with a nice big cake, and they dance, and, and everything works out. That's how a Jewish wedding worked. Now, with that in mind, here's what John the Baptist says. This is so good. He says, the friend or the best man who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice, right? So again, as they're out there waiting and the bridegroom says, it is finished. It's time to party. He's like, yes, as the best man, he knows that his role is to put the spotlight completely on the bridegroom and the bride. It would be ridiculous if the best man said, hey, I just want you guys to know that I am the best man which means I'm better than all of you. So we're not going to make this about them. We're going to make this about me. So I'll get up and I'll give a speech about how great I am and you guys can tell me that, right? That'd be ridiculous. We've all been to a wedding where the best man gets up and he gives a speech to say how great the groom is. And then he just sits down and he gets out of the way so that the wedding can be all about the bride and groom. And this is what John is saying. He's saying, I'm like the best man. He's pointing people to Jesus. And now that he's ready to begin his ministry, that joy is mine. And it is now complete. My work here is done. And the voice of the bridegroom has superseded the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. You ever get superseded? Has that ever happened to you? Like whether it's at work, someone else comes in, they take that position you wanted, or they get a little bit more credit, or they get the awards, or they get the accolades, and you're like, wait, I thought that was supposed to go go towards me. I mean, I remember when I I was doing youth ministry for several years, and you, you invest all your time and your energy, and I'll never forget, we hired a new guy, and we went on a retreat. He's with the kids, and I just like put a little note, hanging out with all the kids laughing late into the night, put a little note on the whiteboard, I love you guys, we'll see you later. And I just kind of walked away, and that was it. And it was, it, it, it just feels, it feels at times a little, it's like I'm being replaced. I'm being superseded. But when you know that your role is to point to somebody else, you don't get offended, and you're okay with that because it's not about me. It's all about him. I love what John the Baptist said. This is another verse that you should memorize. This is so good. He says, Look, I, I, I must become greater, or he must become greater, and I must become less. If the lines get a little shorter, my ministry gets a little smaller, that's okay because he's got to become greater. He's got to become more magnified in my life. And here's the the interesting paradox. At one point when John the Baptist, just maybe a year or two after his ministry explodes, he ends up in prison for speaking the truth. And as he's languishing in prison, he gathers his disciples together, a couple of them, and he says, can you go ask Jesus was he the one or should we be looking for somebody else? Because he's wrestling with this whole thing, right? I mean, this is following Jesus and trying to magnify him and point others to him. It's, it's like a wrestling process. But even though he doubted and he wrestled, Jesus still said this. I tell you the truth, among those born of women, which is everybody, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. That's an interesting paradox, that he said, I need to decrease, he must increase, he must become greater, and I must become less. And Jesus said, because he had that attitude, he's the greatest man who has ever lived. If you want to become great, you become humble. If you want to become great, you lower yourself for others. You point others to Jesus. So here's the question I want to to leave you with today. It's just one question. I think this would be great for you to talk about on your car ride home, talk about with your spouse if you're single, write it down and wrestle with it. This is a question worth wrestling to the ground. Is it all about Jesus? Now, I don't know what it is for you. It could be your business, your marriage, your kids, your work. Is it all about Jesus or... Is it all about yourself? I wrote down just some some questions that you might wrestle with. Is it all about Jesus? Because if it's all about Jesus, you become less offendable. You don't get offended as easily because you're like, well, I'm I'm low, right? I don't think less of myself. I just don't think about myself that much because I'm trying to point myself to Jesus. And when you do that, you become less offendable. Your son doesn't want to take over the family business, even though you were hoping he would, but you're not offended because you're like, it's not about me. It's not about the family name. It's about Jesus. It's about him pursuing his calling. You rejoice with those who rejoice. You celebrate other people's success. You encourage other people who are superseding you, who are getting the accolades that you think you deserve for yourself because it's all about Jesus and I'm leveraging whatever He's given me for Jesus and for other people. So I uh about a year or so ago, a couple years ago, had a friendship with a guy at the church here and um had spent quite a bit of time with him, was meeting with him, baptized him, helped him through a lot of his struggles. And several months ago, I probably spent more, more time with this guy than anybody in the church, right? Several months ago, he comes up to me and he says, hey, I just want to let you know, I'm going to a different church. And I said, well, that means you're not going to be able to go to heaven when you die then. <laughs> just kidding, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I don't, but what do you say when somebody says that? It's like, ah, it's like because the pride rises up, you know? And, and it's like, ah oh, you, you, you just don't even really know what to do with that all the time because we got that pride that's always rising up and you're trying to decrease it so he can increase and it's always kind of this, this war that's going on inside of you. That's why I just want you to wrestle that, that question. Is it about Jesus or is it about you? Because every time that pride wants to rise up and make it about you, you got to keep pushing it down and saying, look, this isn't about me. This isn't even about my local church. It's not about my family. It's not about my family name. It's not even about my legacy. It's about Jesus. It's about his name being magnified and and him being lifted high, and more people taking another step closer to Jesus. And if it means a little less for me, and a little less accolades, and a, a few less pats on the back, and maybe even a smaller legacy... That I'm okay with that, and I'm not going to get offended, and I'm going to rejoice with other people who have success and who are doing well, because at the end of the day, it's all about him. It's about his kingdom, and it's about his church as he leads us as our head. I was thinking about, you know, uh, community Bible study that meets here on Wednesday mornings, and there's a uh, it's a women's Bible study that meets once a week, and I was talking to one of the leaders of it, and she said, "There's twenty some. I should have counted these, but there's a there's a whole bunch of churches in this area that gather in this room on a on a Wednesday morning." And I thought, that that's powerful, because it is about the church, the the C, the big C church, and not necessarily just about our church or about our thing. Because Jesus is doing a great thing, and we're privileged to just be a part of it. So I I come back to that question again that I hope you will wrestle to the ground and maybe even discuss with somebody today. Simply this, is it, whatever it is, right? I mean, you know that, that argument you got with your spouse this past week or maybe even this morning on your way here? Sometimes conflict's good. Sometimes arguing with your spouse is healthy, but most of the time... It's because you're making it about you instead of Jesus. You know why you get upset and offended and angry sometimes way too easily? It's because you've made it about you instead of Jesus. And if we could just take a page out of the book of John the Baptist, and when that pride starts to rise up, that we would just push it down and say, you know what, this isn't about me. It's not about my thing. It's not about my name, not about my family It's about pointing people to take another step closer to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because at the end of the day, I want you to have an abundant life in Christ. A free life in Christ. So I'm going to do everything I can to push me down and to push him up. John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters. Is Jesus. So let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up here as we close with a song about magnifying the greatness of our God. And um, I, I want to ask you to just take about 30 seconds to be silent before the Lord right now and ask that question to yourself. Is it all about Jesus? Or is it about you? And is it about your success? And is it about your program? and is it about your name? And if the answer is yes, that's a good first step, (laughs) because at least you're honest. Take a minute to just wrestle with that question. Is it about Jesus, or is it about you? Go ahead and take some time in silence to wrestle with that question. Lord, we believe that your Holy Spirit speaks to us And puts your thumb on areas of our life where we've made it about us. We have failed to honor and encourage and lift up others because of our struggle with insecurity, our struggle with jealousy. We confess that to you. We we put it to the feet of the cross and accept your forgiveness. We repent would you give us the strength to to be great fathers and great mothers and great teenagers and great single adults and great grandparents? Would you help us to be great? And we know that greatness equals humility. Just pointing people to you. Help us to do that, Lord. Sometimes it'll be painful, hard because pride rises up, but would you help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to make you greater and to make ourselves less? We pray this in the matchless, powerful, awesome name of the God of the universe who is deserving of all of our magnification the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: Well, I know that that was a challenging message because anytime we're challenged to step outside of ourselves and to not take offense, it kind of strikes somewhere really deep. And so we're hoping that this message was an encouragement to you and really challenged you to go deeper in your faith. And so until we are together again, thank you so much for joining in on this episode of the Beartown Road Alliance Church Podcast.